All right, everybody. If you'll turn in your Bibles um, to 1 Samuel 9, that's where we're going um, to start tonight. So since coming in tonight in my suit, I've been informed by one of the children that they have never seen me in a suit. They're aged like at least eight or nine, so that's kind of like, wow. Um, never seen me in a suit is what I've been informed of. Everybody's asking me, like, what's going on? Um, so I think Brother Steve has taken a picture, like photographic evidence, because it won't happen again probably anytime soon. It's on Facebook, apparently. <laughs> so looking at 1 Samuel 9, tonight we're going to be talking a little bit about the fall of Saul. So we're going to do a quick little um, overview of this character of Saul. And then when you think about the fall of Saul, what do we think about? We may think about the fact that he attempted murder multiple times. He threw a javelin, didn't hit David, but threw a javelin at David multiple different times. We have the attempted murder. We have consulting with a witch. So you may already be thinking, Jeff, I'm not planning on consulting with a witch anytime soon. I don't plan on attempting murder anytime soon, so maybe this message won't have much to do with me, and I can just take it easy tonight. But really, what I'm wanting to look at tonight is kind of what led to this fall of Saul, what led Saul to this place in his life, and what lessons can we learn from this fall. But to appreciate the fall of Saul, uh, we need to see where Saul came from how he started. So let's take a look at the beginning of Saul's story. So point one, we're going to take a look at Saul's start in 1 Samuel 9, verses 1 through 6. Now, there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Becherath, the son of Aphiah, a Benjamite, a mighty man of power. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a choice young man and goodly. And there was not among the children of Israel a goodlier person than he. From his shoulders and upward, he was higher than any of the people. And the asses of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. And Kish said to Saul, his son, Take now one of the servants with thee, and arise, go seek the asses. And he passed through Mount Ephraim, and passed through the land of Shalisha, but they found them not. Then they passed through the land of Shalim, and there they were not. And he passed through the land of the Benjamites, but they found them not. And when they were come to the land of Zuth, Saul said to his servant that was with him, Come and let us return, lest my father leave caring for the asses, and take thought for us. And he said unto him, Behold now, there is in this city a man of God, and he is an honorable man. All that he saith cometh surely to pass. Now let us go thither, peradventure he can show us our way that we should go. So looking at Saul's start, the first thing I notice in this passage about Saul, he's choice and goodly. So we see that in the first two verses of 1 Samuel 9. So choice and goodly, what, what do those mean? Maybe not adjectives that we use too often now, um, but they're worthy of, they mean worthy of being chosen, excellent, superior, attractive, or admirable. So when I think about Saul, I'm thinking now of Saul had the appearance of a king, someone Maybe others would follow naturally. Saul stood head and shoulders above everyone else, which in that day and time would have been a big deal. The king needed to be tall, um, and that was a major um, implication of who was worthy of being a king. And then I like the fact it mentions, in fact, there was not among the children of Israel a goodlier person than he. So in all the land of Israel, in all the children of Israel, 
he's the goodliest person. He's the most attractive, the most excellent appearing individual. This person, you look at him and you think, that's a king, that's someone that I'm willing to follow. The second thing I see here is Saul's obedience and commitment to what his father had asked him to do. So Saul was tasked with finding his father's donkeys. Saul can't find these donkeys anywhere. In fact, we find out in just a minute, he searched for these donkeys for three days, and he went all through the land of the Benjamites. So looking at at least how long that kind of distance, he walked 25 miles at least looking for a bunch of donkeys. So he went a marathon almost looking for a bunch of donkeys. So as someone who owns goats, or at least works with goats, after about a mile, my impression would have been, those goats are gone. I'm not finding these goats. I'm going back. I've already done what I was asked to do. I went looking. I went a mile. They're not there. I'll buy you a new goat if it was my fault. Like, I'll purchase a new goat. But I'm not going to continue for 26 miles, 25 miles, looking for a goat. Now, I was actually telling my dad this on the way over, this example. He says it depended on the goat how far I was going to walk looking for that goat. Um, But my impression is I'm not going 26 miles looking for a goat. Um, But not Saul. Saul spent three days looking for these donkeys. He puts immense effort into doing his father's will. He is obeying here what his father had asked him to do, which we'll see later on is in stark contrast to where Saul falls to. Here, he is very committed to doing what his father had asked him, to doing his father's will. So after three days of searching for a bunch of donkeys, Saul and his servant go to see Samuel and hope Samuel can tell them, where are these donkeys? So the spoiler here is the donkeys were already back home. They'd been found, but he had spent three days looking for them. But that's not really what I want to focus on here in the visit with Samuel. What I want to see here is Saul's humility that he shows in this first meeting with Samuel. So dropping down to 1 Samuel 9, verses 19 to 21. So he's meeting with Samuel here, and Samuel answered Saul and said, I am the seer, go up before me unto the high place, for ye shall eat with me today, and tomorrow I will let thee go, and will tell thee all that is in thine heart. And as for thine asses that were lost three days ago, set not thy mind on them, for they are found. And on whom is all the desire of Israel? Is it not on thee and on all thy father's house? And Saul answered and said, Am not I a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel? And my family, the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin. Wherefore then speakest thou so to me? So in these verses, um, and even before this, I think we can see a good example of the humility Saul displayed early in his life. So first, looking for donkeys. What a menial task. Like, I think just the fact that he went looking for these donkeys shows a certain level of humility. It's a task you would probably rather go to someone else. So I think if you have siblings, this is the one you're probably trying to pass off onto them. Like, you know, I'm busy, but Brianna's sitting over there on the couch. Send her to go look for the donkeys. I don't want that task. Um, But that's not Saul's response. Saul goes and looks for those donkeys, and in that task, he's showing a certain level of humility. And then here in this passage, we see his response to the words from Samuel. So when he's given these words from Samuel, um, talking about how in his family is all the hope of Israel, his response is, am I not a Benjamite? 
I'm, the small, I'm from the smallest tribe of Israel. And if that's not bad enough, my family is the least of all the families. So why, why would you even tell me this? Why, why are you telling me these words? And so you can see a level of humility there. And he's invited to dinner as well, which I'm sure he wasn't expecting. Um, like, why would the prophet take time to eat with me? There's this certain level of humility that we see in Saul's life early um, on his time, or early in his time, early in his story. The next illustration of humility I think we see with Saul is actually going to be in 1 Samuel 10, verses 19 through 27. So probably on the next page over. Um, And so this illustration, we see that Samuel has called the people together for the coronation or the announcement of the king of Israel. So let's pick up with what Samuel says here in 1 Samuel um, 10, verse 19. So we see, And ye have this day rejected your God, who himself saved you out of all your adversities and your tribulations. And ye have said unto him, Nay, but set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. And when Samuel had caused all the tribes of Israel to come near, the tribe of Benjamin was taken. When he had caused the tribe of Benjamin to come near by their families, the family of Matri was taken, and Saul, the son of Kish, was taken. And when they sought him, he could not be found. Therefore they inquired of the Lord further, if the man should yet come thither. And the Lord answered, Behold, he has hid himself among the stuff. And they ran and fetched him thence. And when he stood among the people, he was higher than any of the people from his shoulders and upward. Again, seeing that goodliness of Saul just displayed. He was higher than all the people, um, head and shoulders above everyone there. And Samuel said to all the people, See ye him whom the Lord hath chosen, that there is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted and said, God save the king. Then Samuel told the people the manner of the kingdom and wrote it in a book and laid it up before the Lord. And Samuel sent all the people away, every man to his house. And Saul also went home to Gibeah. And there went with him a band of men whose hearts God had touched. But the children of Belial said, How shall this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no presents, but he held his peace. So here, for the coronation of the king, again we see humility displayed by Saul. So Saul had already been given this warning that he was going to be king. He knew the outcome of this drawing process. He knew that he was going to be chosen. So instead of boasting or bragging or dressing his best to really show off in front of the people of Israel, he went and hid among the stuff, was not basking in the glory, um, probably didn't feel qualified to perform the task that God had placed before him. So he decided hiding in the stuff was maybe a better option here. And then there was that level of humility, but then we also see kind of his first real challenge as king, these men of Belial who immediately started fostering doubt and trying to undercut his authority as the king. Um, And they don't bring him any presence in this act of defiance. And I think Saul in his later days would have almost certainly taken some kind of action against these men of Belial who had this act of defiance against him. We're not bringing you any presence. Who is this man? How's he going to save us? But at least in his early days, Saul doesn't lose his temper. He holds his peace, has his first act or really a non-action 
as the king of Israel. And we see humility displayed in that whole scenario there. So where does the fall occur? How does Saul, this seemingly humble, obedient, godly man of Israel, goodly man of Israel, end up where we see him at the end of the story? So we're going to take a look at three different instances of Saul's sin that led to the fall or contributed to the fall of Saul. So point number two is going to be Saul's sin. And the first sin we're going to look at is in 1 Samuel 13, verses 5 through 10. So looking at 1 Samuel 13, we're going to take a look at Saul's impatience and not waiting upon or for God's timing. So here we see um, 1 Samuel 13, verse 5, And the Philistines gathered themselves together to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, and people as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. And they came up and pitched in Michmash, eastward from Bethhaven. When the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, for the people were distressed, then the people did hide themselves in caves and in thickets and in rocks and in high places and in pits. And some of the Hebrews went over Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. As for Saul, he was yet in Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. And he tarried seven days according to the set time that Samuel had appointed. But Samuel came not to Gilgal. And the people were scattered from him. And Saul said, bring hither a burnt offering and peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And it came to pass that as soon as he made an end of offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him that he might salute him. So in this passage, we can see Saul jumping ahead of God's timing. He's got this impatience, um, not waiting for God's timing. So Saul had been instructed to wait on Samuel, but the people were leaving him. They were terrified. His soldiers are bailing on him. And I can just picture Saul kind of looking at his watch and tapping his foot. He'd been instructed that Samuel was supposed to come, offer these offerings in seven days, and tell Saul what his actions were to be next. But can't you just picture Saul as the people are terrified, they're trembling, they're leaving, they're hiding in any type of crevice they can find. Can't you just see Saul looking at his watch? Seven days. Come on, Samuel. Where are you, Samuel? Um, I don't think they had watches, but maybe he's looking at a sundial. Um, You may have to ask the other snow. He may know if they had sundials at that time. If the history teacher, I don't even know. Whatever they were using to tell time, I can just see him watching it. Seven days. Where where is Samuel? Why is Samuel not here? People are leaving. His army is dwindling. And And Saul then decides to take matters into his own hands. I've waited long enough on the man of God. Do we not do this sometimes when we are asking for specific requests? God, where are you? Come on, God. Do you not see what's happening to me? The people are leaving, or in Saul's case, but maybe we're, do you not see what's happening around me? Where are you, God? I've prayed. Why haven't you answered? Come on, God. Just using myself as an example, so I don't get in trouble for using family members like Brother Roma. Uh, <laughs> occasionally, uh, we look, using myself as an example, God, I'm 29 years old. The teenagers remind me every week that I'm old. 
Don't you have somebody out there for me? Is there not someone for me? And suddenly we get tired of waiting on God. And we jump ahead of his plan. And we decide, hmm, that person's got two X chromosomes. Good enough for me. Um, you know, is that not what we can do, though? Because we got tired of waiting on God's plan or an X and a Y chromosome, depending on, you know, the sex of the person making the prayer. Um, is that not something we can, we can do? We get tired of waiting on God's plan. And have we not seen lives ruined because of it? When they marry the wrong person, and suddenly they're not of use for God for the rest of their life because they married that wrong individual. Or they're not able to fulfill their perfect person, purpose that God had for their life because they married the wrong individual. So I was just using myself as an example um, to show that, you know, I don't know what your specific problem may be facing you or what you're praying for, but always best just to wait on God's perfect timing. The other thing I see here is Saul being unfaithful to the role that God had for him. So he performed the task that Samuel was supposed to be performing here. He was offered that sacrifice. Saul's role was to lead the people as king. Samuel's role was to offer the sacrifice. So I just encourage us to be faithful in our role, whatever it may be. Don't covet somebody else's role of service. Be of use where God has called you. That could be singing in the choir, teaching Sunday school, serving in a nursery, just being faithful in your role um, that God has called you in. So what's the punishment? for moving ahead of God in this instance, for offering that sacrifice and not waiting on the man of God. The other thing I noticed there is that as soon as he did it, Samuel's there. Can you imagine what Saul's response was probably to that? Oh, there he is. You know, as, as soon as he finished offering the sacrifice, the, the um, man of God appeared. Samuel was there. Um, so what's the punishment, though? What was he confronted with? What was the result of Saul's action here? So looking at Chapter 13, verse 13 and 14 again. And Samuel said to Saul, Thou hast done foolishly. Thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God, which he commanded thee. For now would the Lord have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever. But now thy kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought him a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be captain over his people, because thou hast not kept that which the Lord commanded thee. So the result of Saul's action, the kingdom was not established. His line is not going to continue. Jonathan's never going to be king. And that was the direct result of Saul's impatience and not waiting on God's perfect plan there. The second sin we're going to look at is Saul's incomplete obedience. So looking at 1 Samuel 15 now, and we're going to look at verse 2 through 15 here. Samuel also said unto Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint thee to be king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore hearken thou unto the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not, but slay both man and woman infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. And Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 footmen and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to a city of Amalek and laid wait in the valley. And Saul said unto the Kenites, Go, 
depart, get you down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For ye showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul smote the Amalekites from Havilah until thou comest to Shur that is over against Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatlings and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. But everything that was vile and refuse, that they destroyed utterly. Then came the word of the Lord unto Samuel, saying, It repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be king, for he is turned back from following me, and hath not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried unto the Lord all night. And when Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set him up a place, and has gone about, and passed on, and gone down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said unto him, Blessed be thou the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What meanest then this bleeding of the sheep in my ears, and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared of the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God. And the rest we have utterly destroyed. So here, looking at Saul's incomplete obedience, Saul doesn't obey the word of the Lord completely. He was told to utterly destroy the Amalekites. He partially destroyed the Amalekites. What is the old saying here? Partial obedience is disobedience. I can't help but to think back at this point to when he was looking for donkeys and how devoted he was to doing his father's will. Here, he's only partially obeying the direct commandment from the Lord. And we see this sometimes in our own lives. Perhaps we feel our calling is to go into a certain field. And we also know that we're being led to go to a certain college. But, you know, I want to do, go to that field. I can also do that near home, though, so I don't know if I have to completely submit to that will of God. If I'm at least in the right field, then surely that's going to be enough for God. I'm in the right field. I'm just not in the right spot at the time, but surely God will still be able to use me. Um, but that's partial obedience. The other thing I see in this verse is Saul trying to justify what we've now de- classified as disobedience um, by saying, well, there's going to be good come from it. So we see Saul here when he is, um, after he's only partially obeyed, but he's like, he starts talking, and it's okay. What I'm doing, it's going to work out for good. I'm going to offer a sacrifice with these animals that I was supposed to destroy, but I spared them, but it's going to be used for a sacrifice. Surely that'll please God, right? Like I'm using them for a sacrifice. That's a good thing. That's going to please God. Um, I actually heard a story recently that I can't help but think of here. Um, Someone who went and gambled quite a bit of money. They won quite a bit of money, and they felt bad about it. They're church members. And so they decided, I'm going to tithe off of what I gambled. There's good that's going to come from that. I'm going to tithe off of that money that I've earned. So I can justify the sin. I was blessed to win. I can tithe off of that money. 
or maybe not using quite an, as extreme of an example, but justifying picking up an extra shift on Sunday and I'm going to have a little bit more in that paycheck. That'll increase my tithes or I can give more to missions. So that's good. So God's surely okay with me missing church or picking up this extra shift because it can be used for good. I feel like we're really great at justifying our sin. So can we just obey or may we just obey the Lord completely and do all that he asks of us instead of trying to justify our partial obedience or disobedience? So what's the punishment here? Looking down at 1 Samuel 15, verses 26 to 28 now. And Samuel said unto Saul, I will not return with thee, for thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord hath rejected thee from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned about to go away, he laid upon the skirt of his mantle, and it rent. And Samuel said unto him, The Lord hath rent the kingdom of Israel of Israel from thee this day, and hath given it to a neighbor of thine that is better than thou. So Saul's line was already not going to continue. We already knew that Jonathan wasn't going to be king. Here, his punishment is the kingdom is going to be rent from you. You're not worthy to be king. The kingdom is going to be rent from you. Um, and then the final sin we are going to look at um, that finishes kind of the fall of Saul Um, we're going to look at Saul's jealousy and pride. So in chapters 16 and 17, we are introduced to a new character. The character of David comes on the scene. He is introduced to Saul. He kills a giant that you've probably heard of and becomes a servant um, to Saul. And so we're going to look now um, at 1 Samuel 18, verses 5 through 9. And David went out whithersoever Saul sent him and behaved himself wisely. And Saul set him over the men of war. And he was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. And it came to pass as they came, when David was returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, that the women came out of all cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tabrets, with joy, and with instruments of music. And the women answered one another as they played and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very wroth, and the saying displeased him. And he said, They have ascribed unto David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed but thousands. And what can he have more but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day and forward. So here we see Saul's jealousy and pride. And what I have to make a note of here, a side note, a little bit of a rabbit trail, but is this not such a human response? Saul basically throws up his hands, what else can he have save the kingdom? Um, I believe maybe our modern vernacular may be, what else could possibly happen to me? Um, Woe is me. And it wasn't even that Saul wasn't receiving praise. How many other people could the women have come out and sang about have slain their thousands? Saul's been a great warrior, uh, has slain thousands of Philistines. He's been used of God. David has slain his ten thousands. They were maybe ascribing a greater degree of praise. But still, there's only two people in the song, but Saul's not satisfied with that. Saul has to be the hero of this story. He's not satisfied with the amount of praise that he has received. Um, 
I just feel like we can have such a human response. What else could happen? Maybe, you know, it's in the morning and we're just driving to work and we have a flat tire. And maybe the kids are then late to school and then we're late to work. And it's like, what else could happen? And we don't take the time to look at all the different benefits that we have just even in that story. We have a vehicle that works. We have a healthy kid that can go to school, and we have a job that we can get to. But instead, we focus on what else could possibly happen. Or perhaps more attributable or more directly related to the story, there's a coworker or someone in the church that maybe receives more praise for what they've done. And our reaction can be, forget it. I've done that before, too. I didn't get that much praise. If they want it, they can have it. I'm not doing it anymore, ever. Like, I'm done. And we become unusable in whatever scenario we were in because of the jealousy and the pride that took place in our hearts over what could have even been an oversight where they may have received more praise than maybe we thought we received for a similar situation. And so what's what's the punishment or the penalty that we see here? It really consumed Saul for the rest of his life. We have so many wasted years that we see with Saul from this point forward. We don't see an example where God used Saul in any meaningful way. At this point, the kingdom was going to be taken from him, and his line wasn't going to continue. But perhaps he could have repented and been of use in the time he had left as king. Instead, he spends his days chasing David across the wilderness He has a strained relationship with his son, so it forever alters that relationship he has with Jonathan, this jealousy and this hate that he develops for um, David. We see the attempted murders. We see him slaughtering the entire city of the priest for aiding David. We see him consulting with a witch. And the fall of Saul is really complete at this moment. But there is one other aspect I want to examine in the story of Saul. You may say, Well, everyone sins. Why is Saul's fall so spectacular? So I think we can see that Saul struggled with repentance. So let's look at Saul's response to these different sins that we've seen when he was confronted by them. So point three, after sitting under pastor, I did my best to get alliterated points. So we're going to call this Saul's shifting. So his shifting of blame here is what we're going to look at. So looking at 1 Samuel 13, verse 11 and 12, so going backwards a couple chapters. So this is after that instance of him offering the sacrifice and him showing that impatience and jumping ahead of God's timing. So looking at 1 Samuel 13, verses 11 and 12, we see, And Samuel said, What hast thou done? And Saul said, Because I saw that the people were scattered from me, and that thou camest not within the days appointed, and that the fat Philistines gathered themselves together at Michmash. Therefore said I, the Philistines will come down now upon me to Gilgal, and I have not made supplication unto the Lord. I forced myself, therefore, and offered a burnt offering. So whose fault is it in that scenario? Nowhere do you see, it was my fault, I shouldn't have done it. The fault was, Samuel, you weren't here. This, this is your fault that I had. I had to force myself to do it because you weren't here. This was not Saul's fault in his mind. This was Samuel's fault. You weren't here in the time appointed. This is Samuel's fault. Looking at his incomplete obedience, so flipping over to 1 Samuel 15, 
And we're going to look at verses 14 to 24. So after he doesn't utterly destroy the Amalekites, and he's confronted again by Samuel. And Samuel said, What meaneth then this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And Saul said, They have brought them forth from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said unto Saul, Stay, and I will tell thee what the Lord hath said to me this night. And he said unto him, Say on. And Samuel said, When thou wast little in thine own sight, wast thou not made the head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed thee king over Israel? And the Lord sent thee on a journey, and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they be consumed. Wherefore then didst thou not obey the voice of the Lord, but didst fly upon the spoil, and didst evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said unto Samuel, Yea, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord, and have gone the way which the Lord sent me, and have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the chief of the things which should have been utterly destroyed, to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. So in that passage, whose fault is it? It wasn't Saul's. Not Saul's fault, no. It was the people that took of the um, livestock to sacrifice. wasn't Saul's fault. Now, Saul's the king. Saul's the leader. Saul, even if this was the scenario, it's still Saul's responsibility to make sure that the people are obeying the word of the Lord. But not in Saul's mind. Saul is still clean of any wrongdoing here. He even makes the point after being confronted with this sin, no, 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 no. I did what the Lord asked of me. The people brought those animals for sacrifice. And then finally, I would have you turn to a passage to see Saul's response to his hatred and jealousy of David, but there's not a passage where we see him really acknowledging that that was a sin. We don't see him repenting for this hatred of David. Um, in fact, we even see him acknowledging at times that David is chosen to be king next, but that doesn't prevent him from chasing him across the wilderness trying to kill him. Saul's going to try to do that anyway. Even after acknowledging that God has set him up to be the next king, he, he doesn't care at this point. The fall is kind of complete. He doesn't care that that man has been chosen to be the next anointed king of Israel. He just wants him dead. Um, and so there's really no passage to turn to to see any shifting of blame there because there's just no admittance of guilt. So taking a quick comparison to that character, to David, when, com when confronted with sin, flip over to 2 Samuel 12, verses 13 and 14. And here we're going to see David's response to Nathan the prophet 
when directly confronted with this sin. So looking at a sin with Bathsheba. So looking at 2 Samuel 12, verse 13 and 14, And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin, thou shalt not die. Howbeit, because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. So here we see the consequence is not removed. David still has a consequence to his actions. But when confronted with that sin, his response, it wasn't that it was Bathsheba's fault. It wasn't Uriah the Hittite's fault. David says, I have sinned against the Lord. And that repentance is there. That admittance that this was my fault. I have sinned. And so we see David being able to be used further after this repentance and admittance of wrongdoing that we never really see displayed in any of Saul's story. So when confronted with sin, may we strive to respond like David rather than Saul. There's always going to be punishments for sin, but that relationship with God and that usefulness for God doesn't have to be broken. And that's all I've got tonight. So we're at 653. Um, If this has been helpful, my name is Jeff, and this has been the Sunday evening service at Maranatha Baptist Church. If you did not find this helpful, then my name is Steve Gaines, and this has been the singing Christmas tree at Bellevue. Okay, let's go ahead and pray really quick, and we'll get out of here. Dear, Father, dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this day. I thank you for this opportunity um, just to open your word and learn from it tonight, Lord. I pray that um, your message has been conveyed, Lord, and I pray that you'll um, allow us to take it into our hearts, Lord. I pray um, that you will bless us as we go about our weeks, Lord, and I pray that you will um, just protect everybody this week and help them to be able to see your hand and your grace um, in their life, Lord. I pray all this in your name. Amen. Do I get to dismiss? You're dismissed. (laughs) Ha, ha, ha.